Have you ever seen something really beautiful, completely ruined? And, you know, it's, it's such a tragedy because it's so nice. Last time we went to the UK, I bought Miv a dress from Marks and Spencers, and it was perfect for her. Her colour, she looked so cute in it. And the very first time she wore it, she got nail polish all over it. Ruined, straight away. Or um, a more public example. This is uh, Cecilia Jimenez. And she saw this painting. She went to this church in, um, in the Sanctuary of Mercy Church near, near Zaragoza. Um, that paint's been there for more than 100 years. But she saw it was getting a bit worse for wear, um, affected by the moisture. So she decided she'd try and um, fix it up a bit. So this is how it was. This is um, a sort of a reference painting of how it should be. And this is what Cecilia did to it. <laughs> it, got, it was memes all over the internet about it. it was called, some people call it monkey Jesus. It looks, looks terrible, doesn't it? Something beautiful ruined. <laughs> well, today we're looking at this incident where Paul, the Apostle Paul, publicly confronts the Apostle Peter about his behavior. Because Peter's behavior is in danger of ruining the most beautiful thing in the world, the gospel. So by who Peter chooses to separate himself from, he's reintroducing a reliance on keeping the rules of the law for right standing with God. So we'll have a look at that conflict. And we'll also look at the, the question that it raises for us. If we are already saved by God's grace, if our salvation is secure, well then does it really matter how we live? If the, and if the way we live isn't to be based on God's law, a load of rules, what is the way we live to be based on? So in your outline, there's a leaf, uh, in the leaflets, um, you'll see where we're heading, we're there. But it's been a couple, we had a couple of weeks break since we were looking at Galatians. So I'll just remind you of the first two talks very briefly. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to the church in, he planted in Galatia, which is uh, in modern-day Turkey. And the first talk we saw, he was absolutely astonished that they turned from the gospel so quickly uh, because some people had come in saying that, yes, Jesus is great, but really to belong to God, you still need to be green you know males need to be circumcised as well but Paul argued against that saying that adding anything to the gospel makes it no gospel at all and he even said very strongly if someone preaches another gospel let them be under God's curse and then in our second talk we saw Paul's claim that the gospel he's been preaching isn't his message. It's not his gospel at all. It comes straight from Jesus. And he gave us evidence for that from his own trans completely transformed life and from the fact that he and the other apostles, even though they'd sort of grown up independently, been working completely separately, were all on the same page preaching exactly the same gospel. Nothing added, nothing taken away. So that was the first two talks. So what we've got now is Paul is given a more pointy, specific example to draw out what he's saying, that adding anything to the gospel is wrong. And he tells us all about Peter's wobble. 
verses 11 to 13. So Cephas is the Aramaic translation of the name Peter. So Cephas, Peter, same bloke. I wonder what is your most embarrassing moment? Perhaps you might want to share it over morning tea. Well, no, don't share it over morning tea. It'll be, be a disaster. Um, but uh, when I worked, I won't show you my most embarrassing moment, but one of them is when I worked in X-ray, we used to set each other up with um, fake request forms, you know, because we were really professional like that. And we put silly names on them. So I walked out into a waiting room of about 50 people. Uh, Dancing Queen, Mr. Dancing Queen. And they all started laughing at me as it slowly sunk in that I'd been had. Well, Paul uses Peter's embarrassing moment, not to humiliate him, but to drive home that even a senior leader in the church can lose the plot. Now, if the apostle Peter can get it wrong, we can get it wrong. So there's been this argy-bargy at Antioch, that's Paul's hometown, when Peter came to visit. See, in, in God's law, as Jethro sort of explains this before, really clearly, in God's law the Jews, that the Jews followed, faithful Jews did not eat at the same table with non-Jews, or Gentiles they called them, or even sinners, because they were considered ritually unclean. But now, with Jesus' death and resurrection, a whole new era of salvation has begun. It's a different bit of salvation history. And Peter knows this, not because someone's taught him that, but because he had a direct revelation from God. He had a dream that uh, no food was off limits, that it was completely okay to have full, unrestricted unrestricted fellowship with Gentile believers. So Peter believed in his heart that it was totally okay to sit at the same table with with non-Jews, with Gentiles. But what did he actually do? So verse 11, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Before, before certain men from James came, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So Peter's begun to withdraw and separate himself, sit at a different table. So he's believing one thing, but acting like he believes something else. Why? Well, it's because of these blokes claiming to come from Jesus' brother, James. Now, we know that James didn't send them from the book of Acts. They're just claiming that. They seem to be the difference. So maybe Peter is scared of what they'll think of them causing trouble for him and what they'll say about him. Maybe he's just uh, like me, likes to avoid conflict. Or maybe their gospel is just easier to swallow. You know, because their gospel is saying there's still something in the idea that you are separate, somehow different and more special to God than these other people. And their gospel is saying, um, with their gospel you can say, look what I've done for Jesus. Instead of just, I've got nothing and I just need Jesus. But isn't Paul being a bit over the top? A, in like confronting him face to face in front of everyone, and B, sticking it in a letter so that we all know about it. Why so public and why so severe? 
Well, it's because what Peter was doing was so dangerous for other people, leading them away from the gospel, and it was having an impact. Look at verse 13. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, that's one of uh, Paul's best ministry, most experienced ministry buddies, even Barnabas was led astray. See, Peter was reintroducing a barrier that Jesus had torn down. Reintroducing a barrier Jesus had torn down. Jesus had torn down the barrier between Christian and Christian of different backgrounds, as well as a barrier between us and God. But Peter, going to sit in a different table at the canteen, was saying that there was still something to sort out between us and God, and there was still a bit that we have to add on to make ourselves right with God. Now this public confrontation, should we ever do that? Uh, I think if you look at the Bible on this as a whole, almost never should you do this confrontation, um, conflict, publicly, almost never. So this is not an excuse for us to bail one another up and embarrass one another with public dressing downs. But Peter was publicly leading astray. And so he needed publicly correcting. Because if this false gospel that his behavior was promoting took root at this point in history, well, the church would have been divided into Jews and Gentiles and could never have taken off. So just from this section, I've got three things it's worth us asking ourselves. It's always worth asking ourselves, does what I do line up with what I believe? So for exam- an example for me, I know I'm a sinner saved by grace alone. I believe that. But sometimes that doesn't stop me looking down my nose at someone I think is more of a sinner than I am. I know that my standing with God is completely down to how good Jesus is, down to Jesus' record, not mine. I believe that. But sometimes I'm tempted to brag about how great this church is going or, you know, make myself sound super spiritual, drop into conversation. I was reading in the Bible this morning just so that you know that I've read the Bible and I'm really great. Belief and what we do, lining up. Uh, It's also worth asking ourselves, am I putting barriers in place which Christ has torn down? Am I putting barriers in place which Christ has torn down? So are the barriers between you and different kinds of people? So is somebody the right age? Is somebody the right ethnicity? Um, Has somebody got exactly the right nuanced theology, exactly the same as me, expressed in exactly the same way? Um, Is somebody too poor? Or I think uh, my problem, I've got kind of a reverse snobbery for people who are too rich, which is just as wrong as a rich person being snobbery about a poor person. These are all barriers which Jesus has broken down, and we should not put them back up. So, uh, do our belief and behavior line up? Have we put barriers in place? And it's always worth asking ourselves, who's got my ear? Who have I got such a desire to stay in there with 
that it might compromise my behavior. So, for example, who at work, when I go back to work on the Monday morning and they ask about my weekend, who is it that I'll leave out the bit about going to church for? So, if we are going wrong like that, what's the answer? If, like Peter, we're getting things wrong, our belief and behavior not lining up. Well, let's have a look about how Paul goes about setting things straight. Looking at verses 14 to 16, that next heading, setting things straight. Well, first Paul helps Peter to see the inconsistency between his belief and his, and his practice. So verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a gentle, Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? See, Peter is insisting on Gentiles taking up customs that he himself has dropped. And Peter is, normally Peter is getting on with being free in Christ. So how can he now force Gentiles into following customs that are nothing to do with Christ? That's Paul's argument. You see, our hearts, the heart is deceitful above all things. We can be blinded by pride, by arrogance, by fear. And that's why we need to make and to nurture strong Christian friendships so that we can help one another see uh, gently when we're making a fool of ourselves. Sometimes you just need someone else's help to see what a fool you're making of yourself. I've needed that help quite a lot in my life, but uh, we all need it. So make good Christian friends, who, friends who can be honest with you and point things out to you. Uh, next, Paul reminds Peter of the gospel. So in verses 15 and 16, he reminds Peter that he stands before God justified, that is, um, declared righteous, good to go, right with God. But that this is not because of his keeping of the law, it's through his faith in Jesus. So in verses in 15, 15 and 16, got three times, not justified by works, not by works of the law. By works of the law, no one will be justified. And three times, by faith in Jesus Christ, put our faith in Christ Jesus, justified by faith in Christ. And Paul's saying, he's saying to Peter, look, we Jews who have always had the law and the prophets and yet still never got it quite right, we should know better than anyone that we can't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. Because that's what we keep drifting back to, isn't it? See, the problem in the world isn't just that um, we know how God wants us to live and we turn away from it. The problem is also that we try to save ourselves or we try to coerce or oblige God into accepting us through being religious or good. And that's really wobbly ground. So I want to ask you, as you sit here right now, this morning, are you sure right now that God loves you and accepts you in Jesus? Are you sure God loves you 
and accepts you in Jesus. And I think most of us would say, at least in the head level, even if we're not feeling it this morning, yes, that's what I believe. But what if I ask it another way? If, what if I ask you, how is your week as a Christian been? And we'd all probably think of ways to measure that. You know, how consistent we've been in reading the Bible and praying, how self-controlled we've been, um, uh, how open we've been about our faith. And those are all great things that we should be doing as Christians. They're signs of maturing as a Christian, and we pray and work towards doing all of those things. But if, like Peter, we lose assurance and confidence when, when we subtly start thinking of them as what makes God love and accept us. See, our good works do please God. They do honor God. Uh, they bring him the glory that he deserves. But we've always got to go back to our starting point, that God loves and accepts us based on who Jesus is, on what Jesus has done. See, the gospel of grace is so counterintuitive to our do-it-yourself hearts that we need to keep bringing ourselves back and dragging each other back to the gospel, back to grace. So I make no apology for the fact that every sermon I preach will always be a little bit like last week's because I'll always be trying to bring us back to Jesus about who every passage in the Bible ultimately points to. Bring us back to Jesus and the grace that he brings. So Paul has shown Peter his inconsistency. He's reminded him of the gospel. And now in verse 17, he anticipates an objection to the gospel. And it centers on the question of what is our fuel to power on? That last heading, fuel to power on. So the objection goes, if our salvation is a done deal and keeping the law won't save us, why bother doing any good at all? Isn't Jesus just encouraging people to do what they want by saying you're saved already? Verse 17. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? And Paul's response, absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I really would be a lawbreaker. When we transfer our allegiance to Jesus, um, we destroy the rule of sin in our lives. Sin is still there, but it's no longer our boss. Jesus is our master now. And in trusting Jesus, in doing that, we recognize what it is we need saving from. So we can't do that and then at the same time say, sin doesn't matter. Because that would be to deny that we needed grace in the first place. But still there's that motivation question, isn't it? If, I, if I'm not doing good to belong to God's people, I'm in there already. If I'm not doing good to be saved, how can I keep finding the motivation to live a godly life at all? We keep looking to the cross. 
See, the cross shows us just how much our sin stinks. See, we might occasionally feel a bit guilty about our wrongdoing, about our rebellion against God. But Jesus reckoned our sin is so serious, so offensive, so deserving punishment, that the only way to deal with it was for him to give himself up to suffering and death on the cross for us. See, Jesus' cross keeps us humble. It shows us how unworthy we are. But Jesus' cross also keeps us from despair and from fear. As we see on the cross, just how much God loves us. How much God loves us in Jesus willingly planning and executing to die and suffer in our place. His love for us is is that huge. And it's a done deal. A new life has begun. So verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. See, the law had shown God's people that death was needed to deal with his sin. And Jesus' work on the cross made it so that it's as though anyone who trusts in him has died already. So what's our motivation now? To live for God. Not to get to God. We already have God. But simply from a thankful heart that wants to please and thank him in response for God. Because think about some of the reasons we say no to doing something we know is wrong. We might say no because I look bad. We might say no to something because if I say no, I'll get health and wealth and happiness. Or we might say no because I'll hate myself in the morning and lose my self-respect. But actually, the heart of those reasons for saying no to something, uh, they're not ultimately aimed at pleasing God. They're ultimately aimed at using God to make us feel good about ourselves. But when we see how much Jesus loves us, just how far he's gone to save us, we gradually, slowly but surely, lose our neediness as the truth that we're already accepted sinks in. So our motivation to live godly lives is for God, not for ourselves. And our motivation is that my life is not just me, it's not just my own, it's Christ living in me. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We live by faith. So now we don't need to lie, for example, because we trust in Jesus has made our reputation with God secure. We don't need to become all defensive and combative when someone is against us, because by faith we know We have heavenly treasure that no one can take away. 
And we don't have pride because we know Jesus had to die for us. But we don't have fear because we know Jesus loves us so much that he died for us. See, when we become Christian, it's, it's not just that my record is changed. It's not just the record that gets changed. I am changed. I'm joined with Christ. So I'm fundamentally new, reborn, a new creation. When we become Christian, we become one with him. So we share in his crucifixion, which pays for our sins. And we also share in his resurrection life. So that resurrection life of Jesus is what's keeping you going. Jesus is what you are made of now. So that's why the idea of deliberately going back to what he saved you from, as if it doesn't matter, is, is so alien. That's why saying we love Jesus and saying we embrace the things he has said are sinful at the same time, is doing two opposite different things at the same time. It's like um, when I was at Bible college um, as a student and money was tight, sometimes going to the supermarket checkout was a bit stressful because you weren't quite sure if our debit card was going to decline due to insufficient funds. Now, thankfully, if that did happen, we had a backup card, an English account that my dad and Sharon's dad used to top up. But imagine if Sharon's dad put $10,000 in there and said, just spend it how you like, and when that's gone, I'll top it up again. Sharon's dad couldn't do that, but imagine he did. And Sharon's dad was really big on birthdays. You know, if you didn't send him a card, that was pretty bad. He loved gifts, birthdays. That was his love language. So imagine if with all that money we got from him, when it got to his birthday, all we sent him was a box of handkerchiefs. I wouldn't want to do that. And I'd want to use what he had given me out of his generosity and grace. I'd want to use what I already have to please him. And I definitely wouldn't want to use it to invest in something that he hated. It's not your life that you live now. It's Christ's. The question is, what are you going to do with it? Well, what you definitely shouldn't do is live in such a way that suggests that you reckon uh, that's all nice and all, but actually, Jesus, it's probably not quite enough uh, and I think I need to top it up with my own good works. So verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. As we saw in our first talk, if you add anything to the gospel, you've got no gospel at all. Because what you're saying is that Jesus isn't enough. You're saying that grace isn't needed. But God's grace is all that is needed. That's what Peter needed reminding of. We aren't saved by following the law. And the motivation to live in a way that pleases God is not pleasing other people. The motivation to please God is, is not to be found in convincing ourselves that we are good enough. 
You know, we're not saved by our consistency. We're not saved by how good we are at self-control. God has got many good works prepared for us to do. But we'll do them for God, not for ourselves. And we'll do them in the power of Christ's life in us. But we need to get grace straight first. We need to keep going back to our need for grace again and again. And we'll see later in Galatians how that will grow us to be more like Jesus, more godly and good than any sort of obliging following of rules ever could. But for now to finish, I thought I would do is each of us who believes it to say um, verse 20 out loud. I'm going to replace the I there with your name. So we all have to do this at the same time so we don't embarrass each other and you can't hear each other. You can just hear yourself. Okay. So, for example, I'll say, Colin has been crucified with Christ and Colin no longer lives, but Christ lives in Colin. You're talking about yourself in the third person, so it's a bit weird, but let's just go with it. Okay. One, two, three, go. Colin has been crucified with Christ and Colin no longer lives. But Christ lives in Colin. The life Colin lives in the body, he lives by faith in the Son of God, who loved Colin and gave himself for Colin. Amen.